Well, before we begin our, our time in the Word, I do want to make just one real brief announcement. Uh, it's been our custom. We don't do this on a regular schedule, but about every year we like to take a picture of the church. And uh, it's just we like to you know, get magnets and put that up on our refrigerators and uh, so we can you know, see who's at Rock Valley Bible Church and be reminded to pray. And so that's going to take place immediately after service. In fact, children, you've just picked up your notes, but we're not going to go over children's notes at first. We're going to take a picture just right away. Hopefully we can get it done in about 10 minutes or so. So immediately after service, we'll just break. We'll put these platforms out, probably you know, get a ladder out, get some pictures, have a silly picture, and have a, a great time. So that's taking place right after service. Well, you know, the last few songs that we sang in this service this morning really provide a great introduction to our text this morning. We sang songs that, that asked questions and then came to a conclusion. We sang songs that said this, What child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping? Whom angels greet with anthems sweet while shepherds watch are keeping. Right? There's a question, who is this child? Who is this one? And then the answer comes back resoundingly, This is Christ the King, whom shepherds guard and angels sing. Haste, haste to bring Him, Lord, the babe, the son of Mary. And we sang another song that posed a question. And then it comes down with a resounding, this is who it is. It said, who is he in yonder stall at whose feet the shepherds fall? Think about that. It says, it's a wondrous story. It's the Lord, the King of glory. At his feet we humbly fall. Crown him, crown him, Lord of all. A question is asked and then it's answered. Who is this? Who is this person? Who could it be? Why, it's none other than Christ the Lord. You ought to worship Him. That's my message this morning. I've entitled my message, What do you think about the Christ? What do you think about the Christ? Right? Do you think of Christ as a, a tiny little baby who is actually the King of glory? Do you think of Christ as the one whom angels worship? Do you think of Christ as one who receives our worship? These are great questions for us to ponder. It's a great question. What do you think about the Christ this last Sunday together before Christmas? You know, every Saturday night, I pray for various pastors that I know of. I pray for the, the pastors at Kishwaukee Bible Church. I pray for the pastors at Grace Church of the Valley. I pray for the pastors at Grace Church of DuPage. I pray for uh, Randy Smith out in uh, Belmar, South, uh, New Jersey. You don't even know him. And each week beforehand, we email each other and we tell each other what text we're preaching on. And so as I, as I get there on my knees each Saturday night, I, I read over their text and I just pray for them that God on the Sunday afterwards would really bless and anoint that time. And you know what? Every text this week that I ran across of those I knew, they all deviated from their normal exposition. They all went to different passages. I know of one man in Bartlett, he was in Luke chapter 2. Larry Pauly this morning is at the end of Luke chapter 1. Tim Sattler this morning is in Luke chapter 2. And they're all deviating. I have a friend in Arizona who's in uh, the Tucson area. 
And he deviated as well. He's in John chapter 1, all reflecting upon Christmas. And I thought this morning of deviating, and yet the text that is before us in Matthew 22, like fits perfectly into Christmas. And so I said, let's just keep going. So I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. Lord willing, we're going to finish this chapter today and then get ready. First message of the new year, we're going to hit hypocrisy strong and hard because Jesus hit it strong and hard. But we're here the last six verses of Matthew chapter 22. We've seen in the context these last several weeks of Jesus Christ under fire from the religious leaders of the day. They've put forth some very difficult questions for him in hopes they might trap him in his words. In fact, it says it there in verse 15. The Pharisees went and counseled together how they might trap him in what he said. It says that in verse 35, right? One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question testing him. These were not easy questions. These were difficult questions that were asked to to trap and ensnare. And in every instance, Jesus answered without being ensnared. And we come this morning to verse 41 where we see the roles are switched. No longer does Jesus get to be the one who's asked the questions. Jesus begins to ask the questions himself. And he asks really two questions. They come in various forms, but there are two essential questions. The first question is a simple question. The second question I'm calling a super question. All the Pharisees knew the answer to the first question. But none of them knew the answer to the second question. And what Jesus does with these questions is really bring the focus of his discussion with these Pharisees and Sadducees, religious leaders, down to the key issue of the hour. Because taxes weren't the key issue of the hour. You always have taxes. And the resurrection was believed on by most. Most religious leaders were the Pharisaical sect. Only a few of them were Sadducees. So that was important, but it didn't need to be elaborated on or really pressed home more. And this question about the great commandment, right? questions like this often merely produce mere theological speculation with little action. But with this text, Jesus sets aside the periphery issues and focuses upon the real issue of the day, the nature of the Christ. In theological terms, you might say that he focused upon Christology, is the study of Christ. And that's what he says in verse 42, right? What do you think about the Christ? He's talking about the Messiah. That's what Christ means. He's referring to the anointed one, the one who came to save. And all the questions that Jesus was asked all had an agenda. I mean, think about when the Pharisees and the Herodians came, right? They wanted to, to get Jesus to side with either the Jews, Right? Or with the Herodians. Get them in trouble. They had an agenda with that question. That the resurrection, the Sadducees had an agenda. They wanted to prove it wrong. And so likewise, even right here, Jesus had an agenda. It was focused upon the character of Christ. This was the question of the day. Was Jesus the Christ as he claimed? Matthew 16, 16. Or was Jesus not the Christ? I mean, that's the issue why these chief priests and Sadducees and Pharisees hated him is because he was claiming to be the Christ. They hated him. And he said, well, let's see, am I the Christ or am I not? And so he focuses his question upon the character of the Christ. Now, sadly, we're going to see the Pharisees refused to learn from their ignorance 
and rejected Jesus as their Messiah. They should have concluded from Jesus' questions that Jesus was indeed the Christ. But they rejected Him. And you know that still to today, that same rejection continues. The Jews today think that Christ hasn't come. They don't believe that Jesus was the Christ. They're still expecting Him to come in the future. And various religions all have various opinions about the Christ and who is He. The Muslims believe that Jesus was a good man. In fact, better, He was a prophet. That's what the Muslims believe. Certainly wasn't the Messiah. If anybody was the Messiah, Muhammad was. The Mormons and the Jehovah Witnesses believe that Jesus was the Christ. But they say that Jesus was a God, not the God. Both those religions deny the Trinity. And in denying the Trinity, they messed up their Christology. Rather than identifying Christ as God Himself, they identify Jesus as the greatest created being, the first created being. Christian science religion believes that Jesus was the Christ, but only in the sense that Jesus like, lived the truth better than anybody else. It's not proper Christology. And it's important for us because it's important in the text that you think rightly of Christ. Listen, to because to misunderstand Christ is to misunderstand His work. And to misunderstand His work will lead you to damnation. That's the seriousness of these things. They misunderstood Christ. They misunderstood His work. These Pharisees were condemned in their sins. Now, it's not that you need to have a Ph.D. in Christology to be saved. I'm not saying that. But if you have a different Christ than the one the Bible has, you have a false Christ. And false Christs lead to hell rather than joy in heaven and bliss of eternal life. Well, this morning, I'm going to give you two characteristics about the Christ. My aim this morning is to teach you about the Christ. You might think rightly about Him. By the nature of our text this morning, my sermons this morning are going to have more theological emphasis. If you're one of those people who like a practical sermon, I refer you back to last week. You can listen to last week's sermon again, because last week was eminently practical. Loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Loving your neighbors yourself. But this morning, the text is theological. I don't apologize for it. That's just what it is. And that's what we're going to be in my message this morning. We're going to flip through our Bibles more than normal as well, so... I trust that you're ready to do so. Let's start our text. Verse 41. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Now, to the Pharisees, this was a simple, simple question. We almost get the sense here in verse 42 that they answered Jesus right away, hardly without thinking at all. They said, Well, he's the son of David. And this is my first point this morning. The first characteristic about the Christ. He is David's son. Now, is this a simple question for you? When you think about the Christ and you say, whose son is he? Do you think his son? Oh, son of David. Maybe you do. Maybe you don't. If you do think immediately son of David, I, I ask you can, you, can you take me to some Old Testament passages? which leads you to believe that Jesus was the son of David. If you can, I commend you. If you can't, I encourage you to do what I've done. On the, the side of my Bible, right here, near Matthew chapter 22, I've written these passages in that we'll go to that explain why Jesus, why the Messiah had to come from 
the line of David. Why he had to be the son of David. So next time someone asks you the question, can you, can you prove to me, where in the Bible does it show that Jesus, this Christ, has to be the son of David? You just look in your Bible, Matthew 22, and there they are. Let's go to the first one. 2 Samuel chapter 7. I invite you to turn back there. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Really, this is the chapter that's the most foundational in all of this aspect about Jesus coming from the line of David. <clears throat> this chapter is often referred to as the Davidic covenant. It's where God first promised to bless David and his house. The chapter begins by David reflecting upon the tabernacle of God. He's thinking, you know, the, the, the tabernacle, the ark of God dwells in this tabernacle. It dwells in a tent. But I live in this solid house of cedar. Isn't it about time we make a solid house for the ark of God? And so an idea came into his mind about building this permanent structure for the ark of God. And it was at this point that God spoke to David through Nathan the prophet, saying in verse 12, When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers... I will raise up your descendant after you and he will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul whom I remove from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Here's a promise. A descendant coming after David that would reign forever. Now there's some confusion here. There's some difficulty. Well, is this talking about Solomon or is it talking about the Christ? And in very many ways, it speaks about Solomon. Because, after all, Solomon was the one, verse 13, who built the house. Solomon was the one who built the temple. Solomon was the one who committed iniquity. You know about the life of Solomon. He went into great iniquity. And so there was a sense where this is Solomon. But there is a sense where it's got to be someone greater than Solomon. Because Solomon lost the throne. Right? After Solomon, the, the kingdom split in two. It says also that my loving kindness shall not depart from him. In verse 15, there's a sense very clear where the loving kindness of God did depart from Solomon. He lived his life, the end of his life, as a pagan man, right? Pursuing the lusts and pleasures of everything, missing out in God. And there is this sense where it's not Solomon, especially like verse 16, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. And the only way that can be is through an eternal king like God has set up with Christ, the son of David. Let's look at another passage. Psalm 89. Turn over to Psalm 89. Gives us really a similar promise. There are many psalms, many verses in this psalm that really describe the promises that God made with David and basically made the promise that his kingdom would last forever. And really, there are only two ways that David's kingdom could last forever, if you think about it. The only way that could be is if the, the, the kingly secession kept going and going and going and going and going and going and never stopped. The second way is to have an eternal king. 
And we know that his kingdom didn't go forever and ever and ever and ever. Eventually it stopped in the exile. Right? Israel was destroyed. Judah was taken away. And the kingly line stopped. No more kings. So it must be that the only way for a kingdom to endure forever must be one who's on the throne forever, lives forever. We believe it to be the Lord Jesus Christ. But look at some of these verses. I'll just give you a flavor here of Psalm 89. Verse 3. It says, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. Again, coming through the seed of David would be one who'd come and reign forever. Verse 28. My loving kindness I will keep for him forever. And my covenant shall be confirmed to him. It's talking about David. Talking about David's seed. Talking about the Messiah. Verse 29. So I will establish his descendants forever in his throne as the days of heaven. Verse 35, once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His descendants shall endure forever and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon and the witness in the sky is faithful. Here is God promising to David that your throne is going to be forever. I'm going to establish it forever. The one who's going to come to rule and reign must be of the son of David. Another one, Isaiah chapter 9. This is Christmas season. This is a great passage for us really to look at. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. These would probably be familiar to you. And it speaks about the wonderful promise of the Messiah coming. And then it speaks about how it's got to be from David. Look at Isaiah 9, verse 6. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David, there it is, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Again, you got the, the son, a child being born, mighty God, eternal father, wonderful counselor, prince of peace, and he's going to sit on the throne of David. Right? He's going to be in the, of the line of David. And so really, it's the Old Testament, it's clear that the Messiah would come from the line of David. And, and the Pharisees knew this very well, that Jesus asked this question. It wasn't the first time the question was asked. It was asked to them before. Turn back to Matthew chapter 2. We saw this passage years ago. It's a story of what took place after Jesus had been born. There was some sort of miraculous star that appeared in the sky, leading these men to come to Jerusalem, clear from Persia. A many-month journey it took them. And they'd follow this star and arrived in Jerusalem in their search for the King of the Jews. And in verse 1 of Matthew 2, we read this. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw a star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard it, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. And gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, Herod began to inquire of them where the Christ was to be born. And they said to him, 
in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Herod had no clue where this king would be born. And so he asked the religious experts in the law, where is the Christ to be born? And they knew it was going to be born. He was going to be born in Bethlehem. For so says the prophet Micah. We began our service this morning meditating upon this verse. An obscure verse. The Old Testament. Stating clearly that the Messiah would come forth out of the little town of Bethlehem. In our reading, our Bible reading today, Luke chapter 2, two times in the Gospel of Luke, Bethlehem is called the city of David. We name streets after people. We name buildings after people. But rarely do we name cities after people. In order to name a city after a person, you've got to have one of two things take place. Either the person has got to be like really big. Or the city's got to be really small. In the case of Bethlehem and David, both were the case. I think in this sense that David's, or Bethlehem's a little bit like Dixon, Illinois. Little obscure town. Central, northern Illinois, yet hometown of who? They may change the name of their city to Reagan City. You never know. Dixon, the city of Reagan. In fact, I remember, right, driving through Dixon one time and seeing some type of sign. I can't quite recall it in my mind, but, you know, Dixon, the hometown of Ronald Reagan. Dixon's very proud of that fact. They've gone to great efforts to remind people of that fact. Right? They've preserved the home in which Ronald Reagan grew up. You can visit today. The church in which Ronald Reagan grew up is very proud of the fact that he's a member there. In fact, the Sunday after he died, the pastor there preached a sermon on Ronald Reagan. You can read her sermon on the internet. It's right there. Each August, there's a citywide celebration honoring Ronald Reagan. It's called Reagan Trail Days. And for Bethlehem, I think it's pretty similar as well. This obscure little town produced the greatest king that ever reigned in Israel. King David, and so they wanted to attach the name Bethlehem, City of David. Maybe they had this sign when you walked into Bethlehem. Bethlehem, City of David. They wanted to remember it. They wanted to make sure that you remembered it forever. The little town of Bethlehem knew this promise. What's interesting here is that this promise in Micah 2 came hundreds of years after David had died. So they knew that this promise to raise up a ruler for them out of Bethlehem wasn't going to be David. It was going to be someone else. And so they were anticipating who this was. And it was no accident that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. I mean, you ever thought about this? Why is it that Mary and Joseph traveled from way up north, probably where there was some work up in Sepphoris, where they were building a temple? It's probably why even they moved up there in the first place. Why would they come back down to Bethlehem? But the sovereign hand of God decreeing this census. I'm reminded of Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1. It says, The king's heart is like channels of waters in the hand of the Lord. He sways it wherever he wishes. It says, Mary and Joseph, you need to get down here to Bethlehem. We're going to have this decree. Come out. Come right on down. It was no accident. I mean, nothing else would cause a woman nine months pregnant to travel that hard journey from Nazareth down south. Clearly, Jesus was born in the line of David, born in Bethlehem, according to prophecy. 
And there was no debate ever about Jesus being of the line of David. There was no debate about that. In fact, Matthew made clear that there wasn't debate about that. Look back in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, how the book starts. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Right from the start, Jesus was identified as the son of David. And this genealogy proves it. These Pharisees knew that he was the son of David. And yet several times, even in the gospel, this phrase, son of David, is a a technical term used to describe the Messiah himself. I want to show you a few of those. Turn to Matthew 12. Matthew chapter 12, Jesus doing amazing things. And the crowds right, were amazed at his miracles. And they began to say in verse 23 of Matthew 12, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? Now, they're not talking about, hey, this man can't be, you know, of the line of David. He's talking about, this man can't be the Messiah, can he be? I mean, the son of David is this technical term for the Messiah. And the Pharisees saw this and quickly tried to dispel the notion in verse 24. They heard it. They said, this man casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. They said Jesus couldn't be the Messiah because he was operating under the power of Satan rather than the power of God. But here we see the title, Son of David, equivalent to the Messiah. Turn over one more instance in Matthew 21. You remember when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, he was there proclaiming that he was their Messiah, their King. And they were singing and saying in verse 9, Hosanna to the Son of David. And even in the temple, in verse 15, the children got that tune in their mind and they were crying out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. The Pharisees heard this and said in verse 16, Do you hear what they're saying? Verse 15 said they were indignant. And again, the issue isn't that Jesus was of the genealogy of David, which was true and undeniable. The issue was that the Son of David was a messianic title. And they said, They're calling you Messiah. Stop that! The Pharisees hated the fact that he was receiving worship as the son of David. That was the issue at hand, the Christology of the Christ. And so with that background here in Matthew chapter 22, I'm sure you can see how it was such an easy question for these Pharisees to answer. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Well, the Old Testament proved it. We know that. Furthermore, it's always the city of David. He's going to come from Bethlehem. And the son of David is a messianic title. Of course he's going to be born of David. Didn't you know that, Jesus? Duh. Maybe we ought to be reminded afresh. The Messiah, the Christ, is David's son. Here's the second question. My second point. What do you think about the Christ? Here it is. He is David's superior. He is David's superior. This comes... In verses 43 through 45, Jesus said to them, Then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put thine enemies beneath thy feet. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? I want to unpack this for you a little bit. It comes from a quote of Psalm 110. Let's turn back to Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is the psalm that's quoted more in the New Testament than any other psalm. And the reason for that really is pretty simple because of all the psalms, all the passages in the Bible. This psalm puts forth 
the kingly and priestly office of Christ in unmistakable terms. Psalm 110 says this, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, you got to, in this verse, keep track of several people. First of all, there's the author of this psalm. The superscription of the psalm assigns this to David. That's who Jesus assigned it to. David writing in the Spirit. And that's important. Because if Psalm 110 is not Davidic, Jesus' argument falls flat. And in fact, many modern liberal scholars today try to deny the fact that Psalm 110 was written by David. And if it wasn't written from by David... The whole argument goes to pieces. It's important that David wrote this. That's the first person. You keep track of the writer. The second person in the psalm you keep track of is the Lord. It says right there, the Lord says. He's the one speaking. In fact, all the quotations in this psalm in verse 1, in verse 2, and verse 4 are spoken here by the Lord. The third person to keep track of in this psalm is the Lord. The Lord said to my Lord. Now, this might be a... A bit confusing. Some of you probably have this down pat. Some of you, especially probably you children, maybe don't realize this or know this. But how can the Lord be speaking to the Lord? Well, I want you to notice in your Bibles very carefully. If you look at the first Lord, it's spelled funny. I have a daughter at home who's just five years old, and she's just learning to write her letters. And do you know how she writes her letters? All capital letters, right? Just because she's learning, right? She's okay. All capital letters. That's all she can write. And, and that's how this is written. It's a capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And then the second Lord, if you look, that's a little bit different. That one's like it's being written by my ten year old daughter, who knows to keep capitals and small letters different. That's a capital L, but a small O, small R, small D. Now some of you know why this is. The reason why this is because there are two Hebrew words that we translate Lord. One word is the name for God, which is Yahweh. Y-H-W-H. This is spelled his name. No no vowels or anything. The best way to pronounce that is probably Yahweh. Um, Some people say Jehovah. Jehovah is a mispronunciation of that. I find it interesting that Jehovah Witnesses are all proud. We use the name of God. Jehovah Witnesses, we use the name of God. But they mispronounce his name. Incredible. They should be the Yahweh witnesses if they really want to use the name of God. Anyway, that is the Lord. The second word here for Lord that's lowercase letters like this is the word Adonai, which means master or sovereign or something like that. And in fact, throughout the Bible, that's how it is. If you see something in all capital letters, you know that's Yahweh. That's his name. That's like calling him Steve. Yahweh is his name, but if it's in small letters like that, he's talking about the Lord. It's like more of an office. And so those are three people. You've got David writing, you've got the Lord, Yahweh speaking, and you've got the other Lord hearing these words, really. And so the question is, who is the Lord? He is called, in fact, look at here, my Lord is who David is calling him. My Lord. And so this one to whom David is speaking about is someone who is David's Lord. What do we know about this person, my Lord? Well, let's just pick it up from Psalm 110. We have a few clues here. Look at verse 1. We see that this Lord will take a place of prominence. 
The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The right hand of a throne is a place of honor. It's a place of prominence. And that's where David's Lord will sit. Second, we find in verse 2 that he'll take a place of power. The Lord will stretch forth thy strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of thine enemies. There's power given a scepter. Ruling and reigning is who this Lord is. Thirdly, we see in verse 3 that he's going to have leading, he's going to be leading a people. It says, thy people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. Sits in a place of prominence with much power over a people. And you read these things and pretty soon you get a sense that he's talking about the Messiah coming. The Messiah is going to come and rule his people Israel. And did you know that almost all of the rabbis all taught during the time of Jesus that Psalm 110 is messianic? It's all talking about the Messiah. That's what they all thought. right? You have the Lord speaking with the Messiah, promising Him a place of honor and power. People willingly follow Him after that. In fact, let's turn back to Matthew chapter 22. In fact, before we go back to Matthew 22, one more observation here. Jesus, David's calling Him my Lord, right? A title of superiority, right? You bow to lords. You do what lords tell you to do. You obey them. And that's exactly the point that Jesus wants us to get. Go back to Matthew 22 now. It's exactly the point Jesus wants us to see. The big question comes here in verse 45 then. If David calls him Lord, right? My Lord. By the way, here's another one of those instances in the Bible where the difference between two letters make all the difference in the world. Some try to make this to say the Lord said to their Lord by, by taking a, a letter Vav, which is just kind of a swoop like this, and kind of swooping it down a little bit more. But it's important, it's paramount that it's my Lord is who that is. And again, Jesus said not every jot and tittle, no jot and tittle passed away from my law until all's accomplished. And just right here he's talking about my Lord. And so David says, if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? That's what's said in verse 45. Now, obviously, the Messiah is greater than David, is he not? He's called Lord. And yet the curious thing that everybody knows is that Messiah is the son of David. Sons aren't superior to their fathers. It's the fathers who have authority over their sons, right? Right? Absolutely. Fathers have authority over their sons. And so how is this one that David is looking at his son as one who's got authority over him? And there's the crux of the question, right? How can the same person be both at the same time? Both son and superior. Both above and below. Both son and Lord. Both subject and sovereign. Both under man and on a level with God. The only way you can explain these passages in the Bible is to believe in Christmas. That's the only way. 
Now, I'm not talking about mistletoe and presents and Christmas trees. I'm talking about Bethlehem and Mary and Joseph and angelic pronouncements and virgin births. That's what I'm talking about. The only way that you can harmonize Psalm 110 with the indisputable fact that the Messiah would come from the line of David is to believe in the incarnation, that God took on human form, that God himself, David's Lord, became Messiah being born in the line of David. When David wrote, the Lord said to my Lord, it was two of the three persons of the Trinity having a divine conversation with each other. The Father is speaking with the Son and explaining what His messianic kingdom would be like. Sitting here at His throne at His right hand, ruling with power with a people under His feet. But in order to get that kingdom, He had to be the Messiah. In order to be the Messiah, He had to be born of the son of David. He had to come down to earth in the form of a man. He had to come down in the form of a baby. Now, what blew my mind this week as I was studying this is the fact that Christmas had to take place. I mean, it had to be that there was a virgin supernaturally conceived by God, by the Holy Spirit. It had to be. Otherwise, it would have been just a man. He had to be a superior. He had to be God come into the flesh. It's the only way for God to come. God had to become a baby. It had to be a supernatural intervention. It had to be through a virgin birth. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son. They'll call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. You know, as I was thinking about this, thousands of babies have become kings. But one king has become a baby. Start thinking about that, it's going to blow your mind. Martin Luther once remarked about the incarnation that it consisted of three miracles. The first miracle was this, that that God became man. That God became man. Second miracle was that a virgin was a mother. And the third miracle, according to Martin Luther, the incarnation, is that the heart of man should believe this. I think they're all equal miracles. God becoming a man is nothing short of miraculous. Absolutely. A virgin bearing a son is absolutely miraculous. And that the heart of man should believe that is absolutely miraculous as well. Don't think for a moment that facts alone will convince anybody apart from divine intervention. In fact, look at verse 46. And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor did anyone dare from that day to ask him another question. The Pharisees were speechless. This question came and it was clear. He had to be the son of David, but he was bigger. How can that happen? It's the incarnation. It's God becoming flesh. And I can just imagine these Pharisees with their mouths shut, with this look in their eyes saying, looking around saying to themselves, I don't know the answer to that question. I hope you know the answer to that question. And the other guys over here saying, I don't know the answer to that question. I hope you know the answer to that question. You know, and they're just kind of standing around dumbfounded trying to answer this question. And there really was a very easy answer to that question. They could have said, Jesus, you're right. Are you that man? When Jesus would have said, you have spoken it, or thus you said, or some kind of vague thing like you often like to say at that point, they should have bowed on their knees and worshipped Jesus. 
That was the easy response. That was a simple response. That's the, that's the response of raw intellect. But they were hardened in their stubborn rebelliousness. And instead of confessing Jesus to be the Messiah, they put their stake in the ground and they declared themselves to be an enemy of the Messiah. Rather than voluntarily volunteering freely in the day of His power, as Psalm 110 verse 3 says, they would be made a footstool at Jesus' feet. And this is how it is with the kingdom of Jesus. You will either volunteer freely or you will be a footstool. And my prayer and my desire my hope for Rock Valley Bible Church is that we would volunteer freely in the day of His power. That's today lest we become a footstool under His feet as enemies. Will your reaction really be based upon what you think of the Christ? As my sermon title says, what do you think of the Christ? And may our minds at Rock Valley Bible Church be led to think rightly about Jesus, that we would respond rightly to Jesus. Let's pray together. O Lord, we reflect upon the life of Christ and how gentle and humbly He came with no intimidation, without great fanfare, without worldwide acclamation, really born in an obscure manger in an obscure little town. Certainly brought some attention to Himself. But there are many even in the inn who missed it. And Lord, I would pray that this Christmas season we might not miss the clear facts that the Scriptures call us to of the whole character of the Christ. He had to be a son of David. And yet He had to be a sovereign over David. God, give us hearts always to bow before Jesus. For as He has come, meek and lowly as a lamb, as He has willingly sacrificed of Himself for our sins, how He's offered the gospel freely to those who believe it. Lord, in this is a day of opportunity. It's a day of rejoicing. It's a day of salvation. I pray that all of us, especially the children, would, 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 would grab onto this, would embrace Christ as our all in all. Because we know there will be a day which He will judge the world in righteousness. And He will come and suppress all those who have rebelled against Him. God, but I would pray that each and every one of us would be on His side when the King comes, volunteering freely in the day of His power. It's in Christ's name that we pray.